Welcome, Pioneers, to episode 20 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We're your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? All right, so it's actually been a minute since uh, Remy and I had a chance just to talk to each other. Last few episodes and few weeks, we've had a few guests, which was a great thing to have. I uh, really like talking to Tim Duncan about uh, the banking situation and talking to Linda from Substack. Um, both really good interviews, really good content. You guys should check out episodes 18 and 19, just if you haven't already, to see all the possibilities with Substack and then Remy and, and Tim talking in depth about the banking situation about a week after it happened. So today we're going to get, we're going to start with talking some of the banking stuff where we're at um, at the moment because everything's uh, panic porn at the moment. Every article is panic porn about the banks are coming to an end, stock market's going to crash. And panic peddlers, that's what we're calling them now, the panic peddlers are really good at um, just generating fear all the time. And it's all predicated on, here's the problem, which is a legit problem. If nothing changes, then it's the end of our economy. But something always changes. So it's really hard to tell who's just peddling panic for, uh, for, click, for clickbait and to line their own pockets, and who is bringing up legitimate concerns you should pay attention to. Um, so kind of with that, uh, to start with, what's this new, um, I, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, Remy, but the, the BFTP, I think, something to that effect, the new four-letter acronym is how, that they're currently saving the banks. What's, okay, what, what's going on there? Let's start with that and, and work our way out. Yeah, and, and leave it up to the Fed to roll out this, you know, alphabet soup of programs. That's how you know it's like classic Fed program. Is, it's got this incredibly difficult uh, acronym to keep track of, and you misstate it all the time. But it, um, the bank term funding program, so it's basically, uh, it's just a way to add cash to a bank's balance sheet. So they, the Fed um, takes, I believe, Treasury and agency MBS or agency debt like Fannie Freddie debt and, uh, and um lends against it so that the bank has cash on its balance sheet. Uh, and it's just a way to make sure that banks can meet uh, the cash needs of their customer base. Uh, in situations like this, there's a huge rush to cash. Everybody wants to exchange whatever they had their money invested in for cash. Uh, so it's a really basic iteration of, of every variation of program that the Fed has launched before, uh, with the exception that it's they, they actually lend at par value, which means if you have, let's say you have a treasury that's worth 80 cents on the dollar because interest rates have gone up uh, since you bought it, um, the Fed will lend you a um, dollar uh, instead of 80 cents. And that's really unusual, in, in, at least in, in my understanding, that the Fed would be lending uh, against poorly collateralized or making poorly collateralized loans. So my take on that is that they've actually, it's, it's kind of a stealth way of recapitalizing the banks um, because <laughs> if you had to liquidate that security, you're getting 80 cents for it. But if you post it to the Fed's program, you get a dollar. And yeah, you do have to pay that back in a year. But uh, the key thing to keep in mind is once you get addicted to any government program, it's incredibly hard to pull, pull away. Uh, and so very possible that in a year from now, interest rates are still high. And banks aren't able to uh, aren't able able to take the capital losses from uh, from unwinding those those loans, and so uh, it it may be just in place for the foreseeable future until interest rates come back down. Now the the key thing to keep in mind is like what's why is this relevant? Like why do we care? Okay, it's indicative of funding stress in the in the financial system, which shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, you know, if you if you saw what happened with Credit Suisse or what's happening with Deutsche Bank, these things happen. In in you know banking crises, uh, banks are short on capital, and then they and then their lenders or creditors have a an incentive to pull their money out as quickly as they can so that they get paid better than everybody else who's late to the game. Okay, fine. It's classic bank run situation. I think where we're getting to is like what's actually worth paying attention to. Uh, why do I care about all this stuff? When's it going to matter for my life if I'm not working on Wall Street or working in the government or something on this stuff? So if I understand your question right, is uh, uh, is that what you want to talk about? Yeah. When is it real and when is it not? Because like banks fail every day, not every day, statistically every week, almost, um, you know, three or four banks in America uh, fail in a month. So 
it's not like banks failing is a big deal. Most people don't even notice. They just show up one day and it's, you know, instead of being, um, you know, Oregon State Bank, it's now uh, Oregon or whatever. It's it's West Coast Mutual, right? They just change a name because somebody buys them out and that's what happens. You just show up one day, your bank has a new name, but you didn't, you never knew it failed. It just failed on its own. Um, but we're seeing the panic peddlers put out every bank that's on the verge of collapse. A lot of the panicking is probably helping the collapse along, but is it even important? Like, is this a legit banking? I shouldn't say that from where we are now, what could make the panic peddlers correct in the sense that we have an actual banking crisis and a cascade of bank failures. Is there anything like that lining up and what would it take to get there from where we are? Yeah. Great question. When is it real? So banking crisis is real when it starts taking down the, the banks that didn't do anything particularly wrong, they get what's called contagion. So say like there's a, I don't know, a mid-level bank like key bank or something. Um, and, and I, I'm not saying this in particular for them. I, I don't know what their particular situation is, but if I saw KeyBank in the news, I would start paying attention um, because I wouldn't have expected KeyBank to be upside down on anything. Uh, and so if, if, for example, you saw their name, then I would start paying attention. But aside from that, they're going to be zombie banks, right? They get, they get weeded out like Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank. Uh, I'm pretty sure people have been watching them for a long time. Um, and, uh, and so for now, <laughs> I, I mean, for, for anyone who's actually working and producing real things in the world, as long as you're following the basic wisdom, 99% of the stuff you can ignore. So save in gold, Bitcoin, productive land, cover your basic necessities, have some contingencies, like if you need to leave town uh, and, and most of this banking episode stuff you can ignore. Uh, if, if there's a major, major response, uh, then you you should be adequately prepared that, that you still have time to react. But the worst thing to be is just stuck in this perpetual mode of panic that the panic peddlers want you in. So you pay attention to what they're doing. Uh, you just, you'll just get burned out and worn out in, in no time. And you'll, I think the inevitable outcome of that is just becoming an NPC. You'll be one of those people driving down the road at 15 under the speed limit, just eyes glued to the road straight directly in front of you and can't tell what else is going on in life. That's the inevitable outcome of all this panic porn. So don't fall into that. Have some basic things prepared. Um, and then, and then even if it turns into a major episode, you'll be well ahead of everybody and you'll, you won't be burned out from, from the years of digesting panic porn. Okay. So I want to come back to the gold Bitcoin provisions thing and, uh, you know, basic preparedness. But before we go down that tangent, um, which could be a rabbit hole on its own, along with the fear of the bank failures is also the perpetual fear of recession and uh, hyperinflation and stock market crash, right? Those three could be three separate events. They could all be linked to each other. Um, basically, since the money printers were turned on in 2020, we've been getting people screaming at the top of their lungs, we're going to have hyperinflation. And yeah, we have inflation right now. Um, and yeah, the Fed is probably lying about what it really is. It, you know, if it's 6%, it's probably 12 But that's by no means hyperinflation. That's just painful inflation. So on one regard, you can say that all the money printing from 2020 did not lead to hyperinflation. And it's, you know, not as bad as it could have been or as much as the panic peddlers are saying. On the flip side, it could just be, well, it hasn't caught up yet, right? And that's always the doomer thing is that, well, it's going to get worse, and you can just keep making that prediction forever. Same thing with the stock market crash. Um, yeah, we had a crash in 2020. It came back like you know three minutes later. Right now, there's a lot of um, theorizing going on because the uh, the treasury yields keep inverting and then reverting back. And then when you compare that to all the other stock market crashes, they say, well, this has uh, been a correct indicator of a recession and a stock market crash, whatever, eight times out of 10 or I don't, I don't know the exact number. Don't quote me on that. But it's it's been a very steady predictor. But it's been a very steady, you know, they've, the people who are saying this today are the people who have been saying it for the last year. Maybe they're going to be right. Or maybe the Fed is going to keep kicking the can down the road. The Fed and the Treasury keep kicking this can down the road. And we keep narrowly avoiding it. And instead, we just get these little hiccups in the stock market. And we get these, these 1% and 2% at a time increases of inflation that we're actually able to absorb. So again, 
are we on the verge of, you know, at what point are these predictions of doom correct? And at what point is it just um, constant fear mongering that doesn't take into account that the next next decision by the Fed kicks the disaster down the road another six months? And can they perpetually kick the can down the road and avoid catastrophic disaster? Or is it going to eventually blow up on us? I think uh, the short answer is I would be surprised if there are any sort of major catastrophe in the near term. Um, the Fed is it's entirely focused on kicking the can down the road, and it has just an insane amount of tools at its disposal to do that. And they've gotten really good at, at doing it. Um, that doesn't mean they're good at fighting catastrophes. It just means they're good at pushing it down the road. And their entire game plan is to avoid extreme fluctuations one way or another into, into hyperinflation or into recession, severe recession and depression so that they can just extend the game long enough to extract your money from you to pay off all of these unfunded liabilities that the federal government has. Uh, so that's, that's their game. The last thing they want is some sort of rapid emergent episode in either direction. Um, and, uh, and so, again, the, the thing to keep in mind, or, <laughs> the, the basic observation to make is they want you distracted so that you don't pay attention to what's really happening, right? They've got something going on in front of your face while they're slipping your, your wallet out of your back pocket. And the way that you avoid getting in that situation, again, is just saving gold, Bitcoin, productive land, cover your basic necessities, and have contingencies in case something goes severely wrong. Yeah, there are going to be accidents occasionally uh, that the Fed's going to make, but they just have so many tools at their disposal, you do not want to fight the Fed. They... They are dead set on maintaining their stranglehold on the working class and the middle class. Um, and so you just have to slowly exit the system. It's, it's exactly what we're doing with our audience. Just slowly exit the system. Don't need to panic. Um, and, uh, and you'll be fine. Yeah, I'm not sure with any time in history that panicking has been the right uh, answer. You know, that's I just keep thinking of the last few years, like um, I have family members who when COVID happened, they withdrew a ton of cash, stuffed it under the mattress. Um, and then, of course, a couple weeks ago when uh, SVB had its meltdown, they ran back to the bank and they took out just about all their cash and they went back and stuffed it under their mattress. And um, the first time was literally. The second time, they at least got a safe. Uh, but the, it's, it's like, all right, so you took all your cash from a bank that was safe. What are you doing with that cash? And they don't know. They just, they watch the panic peddlers and they go grab their cash. Cause if there's a bank run, like it happened in the thirties, then, then they can't get their cash. And it's like, this isn't the 1930s. It's not how it works. And then the other issue becomes they're sitting on this cash with no plan. It's just, it's there and it's depreciating at a rate of, you know, realistically 10% a year. And it's not being converted to gold or silver. It's not being converted to Bitcoin. It's not being converted into meat in your freezer or, you know, some kind of emergency preparedness for the house. It's just cash depreciating into oblivion with no plan. And that's, you know, why I don't like the panic peddlers because it's like you're not even doing anything productive with it. And if they turn around and do have a market crash, are you going to be smart enough to take that cash and turn it into all these discount uh, stocks, if you're, you know, or, or investments, buying something that's that's severely uh, underpriced because of a crash, or are you just going to let it depreciate to oblivion? And that's what I see a lot of family members of mine doing is that they have no plan beyond grab all the cash and panic, just panic, and that's it. So that's I really really hate the panic peddlers because of that. Yep, uh, the Fed would love it if everybody were so worried about recession, depression that they just sat on cash. Fed would love that. That's exactly how they. That's exactly how they cover the federal deficits and and all of the un, unfunded liabilities. Is they need suckers who are going to be so worried about deflation that uh, that they don't protect the value of their savings. Um, the the key observation to make about hyperinflation is that nearly all of your purchasing power evaporates before you hit the point of hyperinflation. And Jim Rickards, Jim Rickards did a really good job of explaining this. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not just that, um, it's not just that the, the time it takes to get to hyperinflation means that, you know, you have five years of inflation at, at 10% and that, <laughs> that erodes a lot of your purchasing power. It's also that the things that you would go to, to protect your wealth in that time, 
their price goes stratospheric. And so by the time you realize you're in hyperinflation, you've missed like the, the, uh, the train has already left the station. There's nowhere to put your money where it's actually safe. And those are the people who get really screwed. So it, it all comes back to basic preparedness for inflation protection, you know, saving things that the government can't easily manipulate, uh, like gold and Bitcoin and productive land. Um, and, and you'll be fine, but make sure that you're making those moves now before the panic sets in. If there is some sort of inflationary episode or severe inflationary episode. So as long as you take basic precautions, you're fine to hedge against deflation or severe uh, recession or depression. I think it's not a, I don't think it's a financial um, process, actually. I think it's, um, I think it's about organizing in decentralized economies like small towns where you can barter for all the basic services you need in a, in a worst case scenario, or you've got direct, direct access to your farmer. Um, and uh, in, that, in that situation, even if, you know, the economy crumbles and credit severely contracts and all the cities are collapsing and people don't know what to do, you know, uh, rural areas are incredibly resilient. And so if you're doing both those things, you've built out, you know, a real economy in a, in a small area that isn't totally dependent on Fed lending, um, and you've got inflation-protected assets, you can literally just sit back and watch the show. Yeah, and I just want to make a quick note on the gold and Bitcoin aspect of that, and then a few others. But at no, you know, this is not financial advice. It's just just kind of connecting some dots here. But the thing with gold, there's a reason why people say you know no more than ten percent of your portfolio. Some even say less than that. Um, you know, you make your choice. But gold does not go up in value. Gold does not go down in value. It's just shiny, and it's always gold but it retains purchasing power. So if you had bought a gold coin in early 2000s when it was like $300 an ounce, more or less, you'd be able to buy the same amount of things today when it's $2,000 an ounce. Um, equivalent mortgage payments, equivalency, and like, yes, there's been some technological deflation where right? certain things cost less because the technology got better. But in terms of your general um, cost of living, what that $300 an ounce coin could have gotten you in 2000 that $2,000 an ounce coin will get you the same standard of living if you were to cash it in now. So that's what you're retaining with your, with your gold is just a certain purchasing power of base assets. If you were going to stuff $50,000 into your, into your safe, you'd be better to put it in gold and silver, uh, gold more so than silver. Silver is really manipulated, but that may give out. Anyways, that's just a possibility. Gold will maintain what you can buy today with $50,000, you'll be able to buy, you know, 10 years from now, an equivalent amount of gold will be able to buy the same cost uh, standard of living. So that's the idea with gold is what you're just maintaining the value. Bitcoin is a bet on the future. If you're buying Bitcoin today, do not expect it to have the same purchasing power tomorrow or next week or next year. It could be three times or it could be one third, but 10, 20 years from now, that's the gamble. That's the the assumption and what the investment is in is that it'll be, be able to get you as much or more because of adopt widespread adoption and other other things. Uh, but do not have the expectation that you're going to put money into Bitcoin today and have equivalent tomorrow. That's just me. That's just my thought, my observation. You, you can disagree, but that's that's where I'm at. Not financial advice, just just connecting some dots. Yeah, I think that's a great way of, of putting it. Uh, I, I personally think of cash as my immediate you know lifestyle needs to be able to put food on the table. Gold is a near-term uh, wealth protection, and then Bitcoin is a long-term wealth protection. Um, and I, I personally just think of stocks and bonds as monopoly money. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't put a lot of stake in that, um, I, especially after you know four, four decades of declining interest rates. And upcoming a lot of interest rate volatility means that those the value of those are going to fluctuate drastically. Um, if you're going to, I would much rather invest in a business I control or or that I my neighbor controls and and we all use rather than buying some company that's you know got that's got profit projections that are completely blown out. Like for example, oh this is a great this is a great thing to bring up. So our friend Tim Duncan this week tweeted about Dave Inc. Um, which is Kind of a fintech company. Uh, he likes to dunk on fintech, 
they had like a $4 billion valuation a year ago uh, without ever turning a profit, I believe. And now they're down 98% from there. So this is what we mean by like Silicon Valley. Uh, even, even though Dave Inc. I think is in LA, but um, th a lot of these companies are just ridiculously priced because money's had nowhere else to go. Uh, and so if you're buying that, you're bailing out the people who, who you know, are holding this thing that may be worthless and you might be the next greater fool. Whereas with things that are limited by the laws of physics, like gold and Bitcoin, there's, there's something that's really hard to manipulate there, aside from the whole, you know, paper gold thing and, and paper Bitcoin thing. Um, but suffice it to say, I think of all these financial contracts as paper money, and they're just, they're almost entirely determined by the Fed's credit cycles. And so I just don't even want to play that game. But yeah, I, short story, totally agree with everything you just said there. I think of cash for near-term needs, gold as a, as a very stable reasonably near-term store value, and then Bitcoin is a longer-term store value, but not something that I would put money in that I need this year, next year, or even five years from now. Yeah, and on the cash thing, you know, you only need enough cash in your safe to buy groceries and gas in your car in the event of a, you know, some kind of catastrophic bank failure. And I'm talking more like cyber attack on your particular bank than any kind of failing in the financial system. Um, Cause that's, that's more realistic, you know, that your bank gets hit with some kind of cyber attack, the website crashes for, for a couple of days or something, you can't access your money or debit card. Like um, the banks are really good about fixing ID theft type issues. And it's not like it was in the 2010s where ID theft was a major thing. Now it's just like, Hey, there's a thousand dollar charge on my account and it's not mine. They'll fix it quick. But cyber attacks, I expect them to ramp up. I see that as, probably the most the most likely event of a disruption to you. So having a few hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars in cash so you can just buy groceries and gas to get you through any kind of um, uh, interruption like that, inconvenience. The idea that you need six months of paper bills to pay your mortgage and your, your electric and all that, that to me is a bit extreme because if your bank is down for that long, there's a bigger issue at play and like we saw with COVID, something's going to kick in to where you don't have to pay your mortgage for that month. Like that's a that's a catastrophic level event. You, I don't think you need that much paper in your house. Only enough to take care of some some immediate needs. Um, anything beyond that is overkill. You know, you do you, but I don't see a need for it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, completely expect more cyber attacks on key infrastructure. Um, food supply, energy supply, banks, etc. you know, expect disruptions for all those things, have a basic plan for that. And uh, the other, uh, I just really see other kind of piece of actionable advice that I could give somebody who's overwhelmed with all the panic porn and panic peddlers is to start cultivating a few Twitter accounts um, or, or identifying a few Twitter accounts where the, the poster doesn't have a direct incentive to sell you panic porn. <clears throat> And I'm particularly thinking of, there's this one guy I've been impressed with lately. His name is uh, Bob Elliott, uh, or at least that's the name on his Twitter handle. Uh, and I think his, his actual handle is at Bob E Unlimited. Um, and even though he's got, you know, a big follower base and, and he works in financial services, uh, he's had really, really reasonable measured takes that are very like supported by real data uh, and doesn't seem to be selling a lot of panic porn. So start identifying those accounts now so that when you see something happen and you're worried about it and you don't know how to interpret it, you can defer to those people or at least include them as a data point to decide what you want to do. Because it may be that 98% of the Twitter accounts are are monetizing your attention and, and have a major incentive to just be selling you panic porn. And then in the moment when you really need clear information, you're just going to be, it's a deluge of panic porn. So start cultivating that now. Again, it's it's all the same themes as every basic good person knows. Like prepare, and then when the flood comes, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, if you had a few thousand dollars right now and zero preparedness, you'd actually be better off buying some some real things versus running out and buying gold and Bitcoin. Like that's actually a down the road type of preparedness. In your immediate life, just fill your freezer with food. That's one of the best things you can do to prepare right now is just have food in your freezer. You know, I mean, if 
if you if you want to make a little shopping list, get yourself uh, an external freezer, just a you know stand, ideally like a sixteen or twenty cubic foot um, freezer, so you can fit a whole cow inside of it. Get yourself a freezer, get yourself a backup generator, and then fill the freezer with food. Get buy a cow share, a half or uh, either a half share of cow or a whole cow. Um, you know, half share of a cow and a whole share of a pig. You can fill your whole freezer up and you have a year's worth of food. It's not going to go bad on you. You're not going to get freezer burn if it's coming from a butcher because they wrap it properly. Um, any of that fear is, is doom or nonsense. Uh, you'll be just fine. Uh, if you're buying your food from the grocery store, you need to repackage it. That stuff's not packaged properly to be put in the freezer. But get, you know, get yourself a couple hundred pounds of meat from a uh, butcher and you can ride out any type of emergency you're looking at. You have a backup generator. You don't have to worry about the power going out and all that meat spoiling. Like you got it covered on both ends. And that's actually better, a pro more productive use of two or three grand um, than, than going out and buying gold or Bitcoin right now, because it has immediate utility in the event of a cyber attack, in the event of, uh, you know, cyber attack on the food infrastructure or prices going up uh, exponentially on food. Anything like that, it's a, it's the best hatch, a freezer full of food. Yeah, absolutely agree. And the one thing that I've seen people overlook is water supply. Uh, very uh, <laughs> Municipal water supply is a very easy target, uh, and a lot of people haven't figured out what they're going to do about that. And you can see from, I think, from the COVID episode how quickly the, the stores were emptied of any sort of water supply. So I'd keep that in mind. So somehow we went from banking to prepper world, but since we're in prepper world... Here's the simplest thing to do for water. Keep any plastic bottles you have, like um, your, if your protein shake comes in a, a plastic bottle or um, like my, my mother-in-law buys mayonnaise by the gallon from Costco. When she's done, she cleans out those, um, the mayonnaise, the jugs. Fill it halfway with water, stick it in your freezer. And then once it freezes as a solid block, fill it up the rest of the way. If you fill it up all the way, it'll just explode in the freezer. But get it three quarters or so full of, of water. And it serves two functions. If the power goes out, you've got a couple blocks of ice in your freezer that'll help keep everything frozen. If you go into a situation where municipal water supply is jeopardized, and that just happened in, uh, God, was it Missouri or Kentucky? I forget the city now where they had they had another Flint, Michigan situation. But um, anyway, if something happens to your municipal water supply, you just take those those frozen jugs out, let them thaw, and now you've got drinking water a couple days worth. So as you empty your freezer of food, fill it with blocks of ice. Just a very simple technique and it's a very simple preparedness, takes no thought, and you've got, got water for an emergency. Great point. And uh, I, this might be kind of a funny segue, but thinking of preparedness, I've actually... And, and, you know, uh, in a very similar vein to what we're talking about with um, interpreting news and, and cutting out the, the noise from the signal and cutting out all the FUD and sensationalism, uh, I've actually been thinking a lot about uh, AI, of course, because lots of other people are, but I don't have the time to interpret what's going on and play with it on any, uh, to any significant degree. So the thing that I'm wondering right now is how much do I need to pay attention to AI who are the people who are immediately um, exposed to being, you know, obsolete from AI? And who are the people who uh, is not immediately obvious who are about to get blindsided by this? So I have been playing with AI, uh, chat GPT-3, three, three and a half, and four. And it's not about can you outright the AI? It's does your audience prefer the generic content of AI and generic is actually being a little, um, that's, that's being not given AI enough credit because some of the things I've been able to get it to generate are better than the generic content you find on journalist sites and, and um, just Google searches and stuff. Uh, and certainly in the fiction world, but think about people like um, the people that like Marvel movies or the people that like, um, uh, romance novels and sci-fi novels, uh, spaghetti Western novels, right? These things are generic by human authors. You'll have an author who, um, uh, so I take the hunger games, right? The hunger games was, uh, you know, big, really popular trilogy. Everybody knows the movies, but you have the hunger games and then you have divergence and you have the maze runner and a couple others. They're all the same story. All of them are the same story. 
And they all all take the same formula for their trilogy. The first book of The Hunger Games was all about her going into the games, playing the games, all the types of uh, monsters and obstacles she faces. The second book was just all the notes from the first book that, that got cut and turned into a second book. I mean, there's, there's very little difference between the two, except it's new monsters, new games, new ideas that didn't fit in the first one. And then the third book is the revolution that is only tangentially relate, related to the first two books. It's all the same characters with a whole new story. All the knockoffs were the same. Maze Runner was the same. You know, I call it the Hunger Maze, uh, the Hunger Divergence, exactly the same. First two books were identical to each other, then the third one. But the readers love that generic content. Okay, Take the Marvel movies. They're all the same movie. You have Iron Man, you have Vintage Iron Man, Black Iron Man, Feminist Iron Man, Nordic Iron Man, Tiny Iron Man, Magic Iron Man. They're all Iron Man. All of them. People love them. They're going to go see them. They're a billion dollars every time. And the next, the next one's going to be another variation of Iron Man. They all are. If your readers, you know, if you're a writer and you're worried about AI, do, do your readers like generic content or do they like original content? Okay. Somebody like Mike Cernovich, he can outright AI all day long and his readers want his perspective. So he's safe because his readers want his unique perspective. But you take uh, take the Dave Ramsey audience. They want to hear the nine baby steps. They want to hear put you know, uh, get rid of credit cards. They want to hear buy with cash. They want to hear everything Dave has to say. AI can replace Dave Ramsey. He has nothing to say. And you could you could go to AI right now and say, give me a financial model in the tone of Dave Ramsey, and I can sell it to all his people because it's going to say exactly what Dave has been saying for the last twenty years. His message hasn't changed in twenty years, except. I think he started using the word ETF alongside mutual fund. Like that's the only thing that's changed in his vocabulary in the last 20 or 30 years. And his audience loves him for that. He is in danger, you know, not him personally. He's fine. His name will take him. But anybody who's writing his style of content, AI is going to replace them because the readers want that type of content. Man, lots to, lots to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> I was also thinking about, and I, I'm not as smart on uh, on the writing side as you are, obviously, and and uh, crafting a compelling story and such. But uh, the the other thing that came to mind is uh, basically any software company. I mean, <clears throat> if we thought SaaS business models were unsustainable before, uh, they just got put on an extreme Moore's law curve. So I mean, it's it's going to be wild for those companies. I mean, Silicon Valley used to say that software is eating the world, but now all the software companies are going to be eaten by software that can auto generate, or at least 90% of the jobs of that company will disappear. Um, so I, the thing that I'm thinking about is what can you invest your time in right now that you can be reasonably confident you can do as a profession, uh, for a living wage down the road, uh, or, you know, if you own a business that you can make money on. Uh, and so I, I particularly am, uh, uh interested in, you know, working in atoms and not digits, working with physics and physical products and not code. And then I outsource as much code as possible. It seems like the white collar workforce is about to find out what happened to the Rust Belt. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, the AI is not something to be feared. It's something to be embraced. And this is where, um, so I've been experimenting outside of my comfort zone. Uh, like, so we've got our first two uh, Substack articles out, right? I'm not, um, this is new for me. This is not actually my, my form of writing that I'm good at and monetized. So this is new for me. Does my writer, do my readers want to read an article the same way I talk? Do they want my same you know, type of sarcasm or do they want me to break things down? And here's five reasons why you should do this. Five reasons why you should do that. Right now. I don't have, we don't have a reader base for our Substack yet. So I'm, I'm making the assumption that they want to hear me they want to read the same way I talk, um, but time will tell. If you're, if you have some really good ideas, like, like take this for example. If you're a business owner who has thirty years of experience and you want to start writing about that, but you've never really written anything other than a birthday card, you can let AI guide you. And the thing is, your audience might like the way the AI forms it. AI is not um, generic on its own. It's generic because it's looking at you know when it says uh, you know the top. Of course, now I'm blanking on a subject. Like, what are the top 10 reasons you should be a business owner? 
it's going to look at all the Google articles out there from the last 30 years about being a, uh, a business owner and say, here's the top 10 reasons. Yeah, that's generic. But you as a business owner might look at those 10 reasons and then say, you know, because you've, you've got no writing skill. You're going to look at those 10 reasons and go, hey, I can, I can tell a personal story for every one of those now. And then you'll tell the AI, you know, help me with this personal story. So you have an AI, a, an article that's 80% AI generated, but it's been crafted to your experience and it helps you develop a writing style that you don't otherwise have. And your audience might like the simplistic generic way it puts it out. I mean, there's a reason why journalists have been writing the same way for decades. It's because it works. So don't be afraid of it. You know, your, your, your audience is going to determine whether or not AI replaces you, but you can use the AI to cultivate that audience. And if you're writing stuff and your audience just comes back and says, dude, this looks like AI garbage. Well, then you're doing it wrong. But so it's, it's just one of those things you have to embrace it. It's change. You know, you don't factory, the factories didn't uh, get rid of their workers and, um, you know, in place of robots, they got humans to operate the robots, right? You, you've got to use the, use it, you got to cultivate it. So yeah, uh, how do you how do you invest uh, enough time to leverage these groundbreaking tools um, without spending all your time just trying to stay current? So for example, if you're a family man, you don't have a ton of extra time. And so if you're competing with a 15-year-old kid uh, and the primary thing you're competing on is how much time you can devote to said task, uh, you're going to lose, right? So I'm thinking of copywriting, right? Uh, uh, if I don't know how uh, you could stay current if you only have two hours a day to devote to something versus, you know, a kid who has no other responsibilities. Um, so how do you think about that? Uh, up until now, I haven't. Um, I guess the, the first part of that would be in a perfect world, your current income is not threatened by AI or not threatened yet. That's a perfect world, in which case you can just stop watching sports ball on the weekend and dedicate as much time as you can, whether it's one hour a day or two hours a day to figuring out how to incorporate this into a new revenue stream or to enhance your current one. The danger zone is if you are that journalist, you are that romance writer, you are that blogger who could be replaced by it. You need to dedicate some time, you know, whether you're the copywriter, like you said, or somebody who's competing with that 15 year old kid who's got nothing better to do. You have to find time. You have to sacrifice somewhere, whether it's, um, you know, all your TV time goes away. You sleep an hour less. I wouldn't sacrifice too much sleep, but in general, it's a bad idea. But you've got to carve out that time the way you would in any other, any other industry that's getting taken over. You know, when you're, if you're working at Amazon or Facebook right now and they're going through these mass layoffs and you weren't caught in the first layoff, you're stupid if you're not getting your resume together and starting to think of a backup plan, right? So same thing with AI. If you're not replaced already, ask yourself, how, ask yourself, how could I make AI, how could AI make my job better? That's the way to look at it. Not, am I going to be replaced, but how could I make it, make my job better? And then start figuring out how to incorporate it so that you are ahead of the technology and not behind it. Yeah. So how much of your time would you say you spend on a daily basis learning new AI so that you're, so that you're competitive in the future versus directly producing something you can monetize today. And hopefully those things go together, but sometimes they don't, right? Well, so when we first started off, um, the first AI played, I played with was mid journey and I played with it for about 10 minutes and then left because, um, so a new word has emerged prompt craft. And it sounds like a bizarre pairing of words until you realize that prompt craft is a, it's a type of digital art and it's all about figuring out what combination of words generate the images you want and an AI generate or in chat GPT generate the essays that you want. I spent about 15 minutes and realized I do not have the brain for prompt craft. So I stepped back and walked away from it until uh, Bowtie Maker made his, um, his AI guide. And I would think I was one of the first, as soon as I saw that I bought it, I may have been the first one uh, for all I know, but I bought it. And um, I bought his pre-guide and then he released the full guide later. And then I went back to it and I was spending an hour or two a day until I ran out of my credits. Then I went to the, the paid program and I, I was again doing like an hour or two a day until I ran out of that one. So now I'm not upgrading my plan. I got to wait like another week and I can get back on mid journey, but um, take advantage of the guys selling the courses because he did all the groundwork. He's got the brain for it. It worked. Now I'm waiting for the next prompt craft to come out for chat GPT. 
So I can start to figure out for me, what would work great. And I don't know that chat GPT is there yet, but the keyword is yet that I could feed in all the books I've written and say, extract my writing style. Now do this. That is going to be the game changer for me because that's where I go from, from writing 2000 words a day to writing 10,000 words a day. That's when, um, I no longer need a grammar editor because the AI is going to put it out grammatically correct. That's the game changer level for me. It's not quite there yet. And I play with uh, ChatGPT for, uh, you know, it was about an hour a day. Now it's starting to increase because I'm getting better at it, but it can't replace my writing yet. But what it can do, what I've been able to do is take um, about a page or two of my writing, feed it in and say, hey, analyze this. Now, now give me this back, you know, write, write this for me. And it doesn't do it right. It gets about 50% there, but I can look at it from there and say, okay, you know, it generates ideas. Basically I hit a, uh, a mental fatigue after about 2000 words writing from scratch using this technique. I could probably get myself to about four or 5,000 words a day because it's given me more. Um, it's like, um, brainstorming with yourself. Basically I look at it and say, that's close to how I would say that. Here's how I would actually say that. So it's it's getting there. And, and anyways, now I'm rambling. Oh man, so many great points in there. <laughs> I, I just had a really basic observation. Um, it, in the future, owning your own AI will be a critical property right. And anybody who doesn't own an AI will be a slave. That's just became really obvious to me right now. Um, and uh, <laughs> I... so. As you can tell, like the current problem I'm dealing with is I'm not good at prompt craft. Uh, I don't have the time to develop it. And it feels like by the time that I will need it, I won't have the time to to figure it out and I'll be behind. And so I'll be I'll be essentially a boomer in terms of AI. <laughs> so I mean, I, I just keep thinking about all these ways, like what do I need to be devoting my time to right now so that I'm still relevant in five years? Uh, the first observation is, you know, if you're watching sports ball, you're going to be replaced very soon. Uh, you'll end up below the API. And by that, I mean, it, if you've seen this this kind of uh, phrase emerge, above the API or below the API, it's basically humanities being divided into two classes. And it's one class who tells the robots what to do. They're above the API. And then another class that's the, that uh, the robot tells you what to do and you're below the API. Um, so uh, I'm just really trying to pay attention to all the ways that I can end up above the API and not below the API. Uh, real quick, what does API stand for? Uh, it's an application programming interface. It's just basically the way that uh, software talks to other software or software talks to a human. Okay. Yeah. And that's the thing is you've got to carve out time to play with this for yourself. Cause like um, I told you, I bought a uh, Bowtie makers uh, guide for mid journey and it gave me 80% of what I needed for the prompts for what I was looking for. But because you can do so much with it, you can't expect somebody to hand you a hundred percent solution because what you're going to use mid journey for is not what I'm going to use it for. So I can give you a starting point or it, it, this specifically, he can give you a starting point for how to use mid journey for AI art, but you have to actually experiment with it. And the thing is that figuring out that other 20%, it means that you're going to put in, 200, 500, 1,000 bad prompts before you figure out the exact wording of what you want. Um, so there, and the same thing goes with, with ChatGPT or whatever one's going to replace it is that, like I said, I can I can feed in my writing and get something similar in, in return. Um, you know, it may never be able to give 100% in return simply because it's using predictive text and over time, my brain changes. It's influenced by the last thing I, I saw on TV or the last movie or last book I read. So the influences that go into my writing are affected on a timeline of minutes to decades. So it can only mimic me so much before you know it needs a human touch. So the writers that are going to do best with the, the chat GPT are going to have really good prompt craft but they're going to be good writers to begin with because they'll be able to get GPT to spit something out and then they're going to go in and read it and change to their, to their thought process. They're going to change it. They're going to add to it. So it's not going to be that somebody says, give me a, a hundred thousand word sci-fi novel. 
they're going to say, give me an 80,000 word sci-fi novel based off of these commands. And then they're going to go through from chapter one and they're going to read it and just add to and tweak it to their own personal taste and wind up with a hundred thousand word book when they're done, but they'll be able to do it in a matter of days versus a matter of months. The mediocre authors, they're not even to figure out prompt craft because they can't, they can't string together words to begin with. So they're done. Um, not that they're making sales anyways. Right. So it's only a matter of, uh, they're going from not making sales now to going to not make sales because of AI. It's not going to change their life any. They're just bad authors. Yeah, so um, aside from writers, what would you say is a basic strategy for being on the right side of AI? And I'll just go first. I mean, it, my basic ML right now is devoting most of my time to industries or, or particular job functions that aren't rapidly being disrupted. disrupted. And, um, and then with any spare time, I play with these new tools as kind of a hobbyist. But the problem is I feel like I'm already sprinting at a hundred percent and I'm falling behind. So, you know, what can I do? What can our audience do? You've got to use it to make your job better. So doctors are another one that are going to be replaced by AI because most of your doctors are mediocre, right? I mean, they're intelligent. They have a high IQ and a, a big memory to go with their specialty. But when it comes to di especially your general practitioner doing di diagnostics on you to figure out what's wrong, you're going to say, here's the things that's wrong with me. And they're just going to run it through their, their own personal filter and say, all right, well, he's got back pain. Uh, can't hurt. Okay. Herniated disc. Right. So you're going to have an AI that can do it better than a doctor. Because if you go and see your doctor at four o'clock in the afternoon, you're fucked. He's already tired. He's exhausted. Um, you know, you got about three minutes to catch his attention and then he's going to throw pills at you and walk out the door. Uh, if you go and see your doctor at 7 a.m., he hasn't had his coffee or taken a dump yet, so it's too early to get anything uh, functional out of him. Whereas AI, you're just going to pull up your phone and be like, uh, my back hurts, this, that, and the other. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to ask you the perfect follow-up questions. And assuming you answer honestly, it's going to give you a diagnostic that's 90% more accurate than uh, what the uh, human doctor is going to get you. So doctors are actually in trouble. Uh, and again, it's like we talked about more white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs. Uh, the mechanics aren't going to be replaced anytime soon by a robot. Uh, a robot that could do the job of an auto mechanic is going to be way too expensive to uh, purchase and implement. So they're safe for a while. Auto mechanics are good. Doctors, not so much. Wow. What a crazy turn of events, you know, versus the, the conventional wisdom we were raised with. Um, so let me see if I can kind of summarize what you were saying. Uh, so what can we do to make sure we don't fall, up, fall behind on AI if we're not directly interacting with it every day is basically too bad. You have to. You... You have to use it to make your job better today. It can't just be a hobby. You have to find every way possible to integrate it right now, even if it's not obvious you need it. Is that, would you say that's fair to say? Yes, absolutely. You got to figure out, I mean, at the very least, figure out how to make your day-to-day -day life better. You know, like here's one, okay? I mean, this is just kind of random, but sit down with ChatGPT and have it make a story for your kid. Right. You've got a, a one year old, two year old, five year old. Right. Tell it. I have a five year old child, a boy, a girl. Make me a story about whatever their favorite animal is and their favorite superhero is. Right. And just have it make a, 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 a thousand word story written for a five year old. Then tell it. Give me uh, 10 different prompts to put in the mid journey to give illustrations. OK. Then sit down, print those pictures and just you don't even have to make a proper book out of it. Uh, just put the story together and then sit down with your kid and read them this AI generated uh, story with, with custom made pictures, right? Your kid will love it. And it gives you exposure to the technology to understand what you could do with it. So now you can go from there and make custom made stories for your kid all the time. And that's just a hobby. That's not even worried about, you know, can I monetize this story? Should I publish it? Nothing like that. Just use it because it gives you something to do with your kid. And then when your kid is seven, sit them down on your lap in front of the computer and make a story together, make the illustrations together and put it out, right? That's family time, it's productive use, it's fun, you're getting something out of it. That's just a first step to putting AI to use in your life. So basically, uh, you can't think of it as a trade-off between doing your job and learning AI. Your job just became learning AI. <laughs> Even if it's just managing your personal life, you need to integrate it in every way you possibly can. That's like, we just got an ultimatum, essentially. Yes, absolutely. Because if you, if you take the bury your head in the sand approach, you're fucked. You know, look, mediocrity 
um, was a middle class invention because life got so good in, in the in the 20th century, especially in the 1980s, 1990s, that you could just you could work your nine to five, get your two weeks vacation a year, be mediocre, and you were so comfortable that life was great. Our ancestors looked at that and they had to fight tooth and nail to never live as comfortably as the boomers did in the 90s being mediocre. You don't have that luxury. You do not have the luxury of mediocrity. You are either left behind or you are great. And if you're going to be great, you have to embrace all the new technology. There is no other way around it. So this is kind of funny. I mean, every day I feel like there's a lion chasing me, like I'm in a dead sprint to avoid being dinner with technology. Um, but then there's also that saying that you don't have to be the fastest or you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be the fastest. You just have to not be the slowest, right? <laughs> so how much is it that we absolutely are in a dead sprint and how much is it that you just have to be ahead of, of the slowest dude? Uh, 80-20, you still need to be in the top 20% of the sprinters, but you don't have to, like, you can buy Bowtie Maker's Guide for um, mid-journey, right? You don't have to start from scratch. If you're under 40, you can get away with, uh, or excuse me, if you're over 40, you can get away with not knowing how to code. You can probably get by in other people's work for the next 40 years without knowing how to code personally. If you are under 40, and you don't know how to code, learn now or you're fucked. Um, same with ChatGPT. Somebody's going to put out, there's got to be somebody in the Bowtie Jungle who's going to put out a prompt craft guide to ChatGPT sooner or later. If they haven't, they really need to. Um, the ultimate irony would be to sit down with ChatGPT and write a guide for how to use GPT prompted by GPT. That would be the ultimate in laziness. And, and I think that'd be hilarious. But anyways, somebody's doing the work for you. Find a YouTube video, find a, a guide, find somebody who's selling a guide, a how-to version, and then get yourself caught up to speed. You don't have to start from scratch. Don't be afraid to use other people's products. If you are the person who could start from scratch and go, I mean, you better be making uh, presentations and videos and PowerPoints and how-to guides because you're just leaving money on the table if you're not. Um, you're the top 1%. The, 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 next, the, the next 19% can buy your guide. And anybody who's not buying it, they're done. Yeah. So basically, the um, what I'm trying to figure out right now is, uh, well, I basically made these two observations. One is that the internet is creating two entirely separate species of human: people above the API who are collecting massive amounts of wealth and lifestyle freedom, and people below the API who will become desperate, destitute slaves. And it used to be in the past that rich people congregated around rich people. And they erected barriers to keep out the desperate, unwashed masses. But now you can't do that, right? With the internet, uh, it creates massive wealth disparities, but it also um, creates wealth disparities amongst neighbors. So it turn out, it could be that your neighbor is an entirely different species of human and is desperate for survival on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think one of the relevant questions we're going to deal with very soon is how do you protect yourself physically from all these people who are now right near you and are going to be wanting what you have. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of different things about that. Um, one of them, you see it uh, popping up on Twitter a lot is staying away from essentially staying, uh, not, not flashing your wealth, right? Not showing off to everybody, not showing, um, not being really flashy with your jewelry and things like that. So kind of don't, you may not want to show off your wealth at all. Just dress normal look like everybody else. Um, I know a lot of people get really upset at the notion of driving a used car because it blends in. And the, you know, like the whole point of money is to, to you know, drive yourself a Lexus or a Rolls Royce or, you know, show off what you have. And it's like, yeah, maybe. So if you're in a neighborhood or in a, in a bigger city or even a suburb, you might not want to show that off. Um, you know, I live out in the sticks. It's not a lifestyle for everybody, but yeah, there's not a whole lot of neighbors or people here. I got to drive three hours just to get to a uh, stoplight. So, you know, the wealth disparity issue is not a big deal out here. Sure, we have, there's there's people with less money, but they they've they've had their whole life without money, and they don't really care. They're 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 living their own lifestyle and just doing their own thing. Um, and you can kind of Ramad, you can kind of hide a lot of your wealth quite literally because nobody sees you. Uh, so living out in the country is one potential option, especially in the Wi-Fi economy where you don't have to be in a city. But if you, for some reason, have to be in the cities or suburbs, just 
you know, consider maybe you don't upgrade your car this year. Just put that money away, put it into some gold and Bitcoin, or just just store it off into some other asset that's not visible until things settle out and uh, we we see how the economy is going to shake up and how lifestyles are going to shake up. The growth period is going to be tough, right? Because like, like, think about this. Have you ever watched uh, Star Trek, TV show Star Trek? Yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> okay. So, you know, a lot of the socialists like to point to Star Trek and go, see, that's a post-capitalist society and blah, 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 and socialism works. And it's like, well, one, it's fiction. But the actual um, selling point of Star Trek is that technology and resources got so abundant that money became irrelevant, right? They've got endless energy, endless food, endless everything. Um, so that's kind of the premise, the starting point of the show is that we solve the basic function of food and energy. Well, with the advancements in AI, the advancements in robotics, the advancements in nuclear technology, um, it's not unreasonable to say that a hundred years from now we'll be so dense in energy and food and, and labor through, through these things that human beings could focus on other ideas. Like it's not, it's not, it's not impossible that that there's a very optimistic future where labor is obsolete. The problem is the transition from here to there, it could be very detrimental and making more people poor and actually have, uh, will will move backwards until the technology gets into everybody's hands, right? So we're in that transition period of technology is scary because it's putting people out of work, but a hundred years from now, it um, it could actually be a good thing and we surpass into a system that we, is completely unheard of right now. Maybe this is a complete fantasy. Maybe I'm just in a complete fantasy land here, but you know, it, it's possible that human beings will be freed up and we will see a, a real bifurcation of people. You'll see people who, when they don't have to work for food and energy, they go the Star Trek route where they put all their efforts into bettering themselves through science and technology and just being the best possible human they could be. And then you'll see the other half go the WALL-E route where they sit in a chair, get fat, and talk all day, and you know are, aren't even aware of the fact that they have a pool on their starship, right? So we're looking at the Wall-E future, or we're looking at the Star Trek future, and I, it's very possible that both come true, and it's all based off of those who embrace the technology and move forward, and those who become slaves to the technology. Yeah, interesting. I um, so a few points there. I think uh, yeah, obviously conspicuous consumption will be really stupid, and I think Bowtie Bowl. Uh, did a good job of explaining that quite a while ago that, uh, you know, <laughs> you, uh, you should live like a peasant because your neighbors are going to get really jealous of you, uh, very soon. Um, but the problem that I see is that people will be able to tell that just by the fact that you're not one of those characters from Idiocracy or Wally, -E, that you're a different breed of human and therefore you must have tremendous resources that they want to get their hands on. It's very hard to hide. Um, hey, speaking of kind of sci-fi themes there was this movie elysium uh a few years ago and uh they essentially it's basically the same thing humanity uh divides into two classes or two species entirely separate species of human um you know the super species that lives up in the civilization in the sky and then they uh they make sure that none of the you know the unwashed masses down in the city is just scrapping for basic survival none of them are able to get up there um and so again that's that same old theme of if you're really wealthy, you create barriers so that people can't access, you know, can't, can't break through them and, uh, um, and steal what you've built. But, uh, um, I just, it's really hard for me to imagine a situation where you're able to placate the unwashed masses until they're numb and they don't represent a physical threat, you know, like the, uh, kind of the idiocracy model where, um, <laughs> they're too busy watching porn and, uh, and masturbating or, or doing whatever. And, and so they don't actually ever, um, they don't pose a real threat, but at the same time in that, in that movie, there were no, there was no super class of humans, right? There was no, no one for them to aspire to be or to be jealous of. Uh, and so it's just a really, um, it's going to be a really unusual time. Well, the idiocracy future and Wally future may, may actually be more accurate than a violent future. Cause you think like, have you ever um, driven through an Indian reservation in America, an American Indian reservation, not, not the casino and resort things, but the actual reservation itself, you'll notice it's just poverty. It's endless poverty on the reservation. And 
everybody for the most part on an Indian reservation who's, who's full-blooded and whatnot, little variance between tribes, but you get it. Basically, you get a check for being an Indian. So long as you live on the reservation, you continue to get the free money. The catch is you have to be poor. And a very significant percentage of those living on the reservation choose to be poor for free versus going out and succeeding. And what you'll find is that the most successful and um, wealthy uh, American Indians all leave the reservation and cast away the free money and just go out and, and make a life for themselves. Well, the, the lesson there is like the universal basic income, which is what people are going to want to push when AI starts mass replacing jobs, assuming this is assuming, of course, that the population collapse and demographic collapse doesn't make uh, AI a necessity versus actually replacing jobs. But if people lose their jobs in mass to AI and you just give them universal basic income, the likelihood that they take it and just choose to be poor goes through the roof. And when you have TikTok, which is digital fentanyl, when you have you know all the social media and whatever is going to replace TikTok being more digital fentanyl, when you have all these games you play on your phone that are digital fentanyl, when you have real fentanyl flooding the streets, um, when you have food that makes you lethargic and stupid and that's delivered to your door right now through DoorDash, soon by a robot or a drone, people will be will gladly take money to be fat and digitally lobotomized and just sit in their house watching porn, masturbating, and watching TikTok in between masturbation sessions, shoving poisonous food in their face. They will embrace it because it's free and takes no effort. So you may not have to worry about them getting violent if you can just give them enough porn and fast food. Yeah, great point. I mean, their their destitution is manageable because they've been anesthetized and lobotomized. So what happens when they, uh, let's say they encounter a, a situation where... Um, they need some sort of life-saving treatment and they don't have the resources to pay for it. And they view it as a human right to be provided with that life-saving treatment. Then I could see them being very violent. But what do you think? Um, I mean, it's possible, but again, how violent can, can a 300 pound marshmallow be? Yeah. Great point. <laughs> it's sort of, it's, it's interesting. We, we speculate about these things, but then if you actually put yourself forward into that scenario, and imagine all the the surrounding variables and environment. It is it's uh, uh, it's a totally different situation. So maybe the you know current rules wouldn't necessarily apply. Yeah, I mean it's hard to say. We could easily theorize it going the other way to where it's the Elysium future and we have uh, just the very poor and the very rich. There is nothing in between, which is that's always been the threat, right? The middle class is going to go away, and all you'll have is poverty and elites. It could easily go that way too. I I don't. I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. But just right now, my money is on uh, Wally and Idiocracy versus Elysium. You know, if I had to pick between the two, I'd say Wally is a lot more likely than uh, than Elysium. Okay, so long term, maybe it wouldn't be a violent future, but at least in the near term, basic mo is you know don't don't do conspicuous consumption, um, and uh, and you know don't put yourself in the middle of a, a hugely populated area with lots of destitute people, because uh, in the interim, there may be a lot of, you know, there may be a lot of upheavals. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I haven't re uh, worn our wedding rings in two years. And it's not that they're, you know, super expensive, super fancy or anything, but they're expensive enough and they're fancy enough, right? It's just enough. It's uh, most people won't even take a second notice at them, but well, 10 years ago, most people wouldn't take a second notice at them today it's enough to um, it's enough to put in the safe and just just wait out the uh, wait out life and, and wait till things calm down again and people don't aren't losing their minds. So, anyways, um, that's about it. Uh, unless you have anything you want to add to you know any any final thoughts for um, both the AI side of it and the banking side that we talked about at the beginning. If you have anything that you think you want to add to those. Yeah, just don't drown in the panic porn. It's it's just the it's we're swimming in it now. So uh, um, just don't get carried away by it. This, the, the basic playbook book hasn't changed. So um, so just don't get stuck with all the uh, rage of the moment. Yeah, it's, it's a good point because you know you can sit there and say there's going to be a market crash every single day. You'll be right eventually. You know you're going to be wrong three thousand times, but you'll be right one time. And then uh, all of a sudden you got all this credibility, you know, um, I don't really want to just 
tear down other people, but there's definitely some some panic peddlers out there who they call it the two thousand they call it the dot com crash, they call it the two thousand eight crash, and they call it the COVID crash. But they also cost called a crash every single day in between. So they got it right three times in twenty years. Um, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in those guys. They're gonna be right eventually, but don't uh, like you said, don't give in to the panic. Continue to grow your business, continue to grow your life, and just, you know, when it happens, just have something aside to be ready for it. Have some food in your freezer, maybe a few gold gold coins in the safe, and if you're really lucky, you have some Bitcoin for, for 20 years down the road. Um, outside of that, don't panic. But that's going to wrap it up, guys. Um, remember, you can reach us at Wi-Fi underscore Pioneers on Twitter. Uh, we want to hear from you. We want to get some feedback from you. We're also on Substack now. You can go to Wi-Fi Pioneers at Substack and um, leave some direct comments either on the podcast. It's going to be there. Or you can leave uh, on our articles. Tell us you like it. Tell us you hate it. Tell us you disagree, whatever. Um, just give us some feedback and uh, we'll we'll definitely address that moving forward, whether it's good criticism or uh, just, you know, you have questions. So at that, have a good weekend. Remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.